What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories we cover this week include compliance and governance for NFTs, compliance risks, and post-acquisition integration, why a collective response is needed to ransomware attacks, how using stories can make your corporate values stick, what is the cost of compliance, a new Thomson Reuters report, Is artificial intelligence up to AML work? Are there echoes of the financial crisis of 2008 in the air? More charges are still coming down from the Odebrecht case. What are the lessons learned for corporate boards of directors from the Exxon imbroglio? And what is the status of your financial crimes compliance program? New podcasts, highlighted podcasts, events, and more, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, now podcasting from a disclosed location in Southern Southern California as we are back again for this week in FCPA episode 255 for the week ending June 4, 2021, the Cheaters Sweep edition. Uh, as it appeared when I wrote these show notes that the Astros would sweep the Boston Red Sox. Uh, um, and as we entered the sixth month of 2021, think about that for a while. Jay and I are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our eye. So, Jay, what say you? Uh, Tom, while we're doing this, I will um, be watching the scoreboard. And if there's any exciting information about the Astros, I'll be sure to share it with you and our visitors. But from that point, let's talk about story number one. All right. Well, uh, I've been nosing around in NFTs, and which are non-fungible tokens. The well, NFT market grew at 180. It grew at 187 percent from 2018 to 2020, and there was a really interesting article in Experts League by Ingrid Vasilou Feltes. Sorry if I butchered your name, Ingrid, um, about NFTs. And Jay, there's actually a compliance angle to this. Uh, because she talks about an ethical perspective that we must ensure basic ethical principles such as justice, autonomy, confidentiality, fidelity, integrity, and non-malfeasance are upheld. But there's also a data governance protection, or, or rather perspective, and that strategy, policies, procedures, uh, security, communications around NFTs. So, this is so far, I think, has been um, focused on the art world. But as the more I nosed into it, Jay, and, and did some research for an upcoming blog post, NFTs are really uh, a next uh, type of investment of any um, really tangible uh, asset 
that can be generated uh, by a computer, which, uh, hint, hint, would include a podcast. So uh, while the art world is split around NFTs as a giveaway, uh, there appears that there's going to be a wide opportunity for financial gain. And so there's going to need to be uh, some really uh, ring fencing around this in terms of policies, procedures, perhaps government regulations and governance programs to mitigate their potential for misuse. So keep your eyes on NFTs. Uh, I I watched a video from Gary Vanderchuk and he was really touting these. uh, And this is something that I think we're going to be watching over the next couple of years as we uh, just as we did around cryptocurrencies a couple of years ago. So uh, the pace of change continues. Compliance needs to be a part of that. And the NFTs are something that compliance is going to be uh, uh, needs to be a part of going forward. Thanks, Tom. Uh, first of one from the FCPA blog, uh, written by Jennifer Fondrevet. And the question Jennifer asks is, why post-M&A decisions are dangerous for compliance? As often happens post-merger or acquisition, when people try to prove their value, they can be tempted to make decisions differently. Their motivation shift from being what's best for the business to what do I need to save my job? Ethics or compliance leaders engaged in M&A due diligence may feel a primary responsibility is to ensure that they don't buy into another company's mistakes. Their energy is focused on rooting out legacy problems. Comprehensive due diligence, however, needs to consider the post-deal environment from a culture standpoint. Will the company's leaders in the workforce of your acquisition make decisions that reflect your values? Here are three critical realities to keep in mind. Number one, don't underestimate the effect of an M&A acquisition on your colleagues' decision-making processes. Every merger and acquisition deal results in a new set of bosses and a new set of expectations. Even former coworkers can change their behavior to accommodate new leadership's expectations. Number two, after an M&A deal, people have two jobs, the one they're hired for and the second job of ensuring post-deal integration. Managing both jobs can lead to cutting corners. When new growth strategies are defined during due diligence, determining what resources will be required isn't straightforward. Particularly if frontline leaders' input isn't solicited due to confidentiality restraints. Thus, frontline leaders can subsequently find themselves under-resourced for what they expect to deliver post-deal. The burden of doing two jobs can be overwhelming and further complicated when the second job has reasonable expectations attached to it. Lastly, trust can erode when frontline leaders feel blindsided by the deal announcement. One of the great ironies of an M&A deal activity is that trust, which is a key ingredient for business success, often quickly dissolves as M&A due diligence is typically cloaked in secrecy. Frontline leaders in particular can feel blindsided when a deal is announced. Such erosion of trust can lead to unexpected, sometimes vengeful behavior. With these realities in mind, ethics and compliance leaders might not recognize that their role in M&A due diligence is far more important than initially contemplated. No other executive in the due diligence process will have the insights and expertise to highlight the possibility for compromised behavior when defined growth strategies are unrealistic. 
ENC leaders can play a crucial role in voicing the post-deal behaviors that can emerge due to attained business valuations before the deal is done. Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack is, I think, on the forefront of many people's minds. Uh, and our colleague Jacqueline Jagar wrote about it this week in Compliance Week. And Jacqueline talked about the specific facts of the attack. She talked about the um, executive order issued by the Biden administration coincidentally the same week of the attack, although uh, the Biden executive order was really aimed at uh, sort of post-solar winds hacked. She also uh, wrote about the phenomenon that uh, is as late as today was on the front page of the New York Times, which is uh, ransomware as a software where or ransomware as a service where cyber criminals uh, really don't even need the technical skills to carry out a ransomware attack. Our colleague Jonathan Armstrong likened it to a Tupperware party where you sort of take what you uh, want and go home and use it your own way. I've thought about it in the terms of a franchise operation where a franchisor will make available certain tools or processes or a name, and then it's up to the franchisee to use that within the structure of the franchise agreement. Which, whichever uh, analogy you use, uh, the barrier to entries are pretty low and their return on investment for such attacks are pretty high. Uh, but Jacqueline talked about the, the thing that I thought was the most interesting was uh, whether uh, the cybersecurity community uh, should ban uh, or regulators should ban ransomware payments. The argument is that if everybody stops paying cyber criminals, they would stop launching uh, ransomware attacks. Uh, I, I would have to say that uh, probably in the history of the world, Jay, uh, the non-payment of ransom for kidnappings has not stopped kidnappings uh, since they've been around, uh, since uh, there's been recorded uh, documentation. Uh, it's not the world's oldest, oldest profession, but it may be war one of the world's oldest crimes. So I'm not sure uh, that would really work. But I think uh, she is on to something that uh, we do need more of a collective defense and a collective response. Unfortunately, you're only as weak, uh, or rather only as strong as your weakest link. And for every company, that means everyone they do business with. Uh, it certainly is true on the supply chain side, but it's also true, uh, it may be true on the customer side as well. So whether we get an internationally coordinated effort to develop a clear, accessible, and broadly adopted framework to help prepare for these or not, uh, something different is going to have to be done. And uh, before we got uh, on this recording, Jay, I was talking <clears throat> to a client I still have from my, from my law work who's in industrial services on the Texas Gulf Coast. And her, her question to me was, Tom, what do you know about cybersecurity compliance? Uh, it's down to that level. So um, everyone needs to be aware of that. And the response from the Biden administration leading us will be uh, hopefully robust but something that uh, we're probably going to be talking about uh, quite a bit more uh, in the future. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we visit Notre Dame's Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership blog. This story comes to us from Brett Beasley, and we're looking at how you can use stories to make your corporate and cultural values stick. When it comes to building character and ethical cultures, stories aren't just for entertainment. They are essential. 
How would you describe your organization and your leadership? You might use terms like data-driven or results-driven, but what about story-driven? Research suggests that when it comes to the important task of instilling and living values, stories should be the centerpiece of your strategy. Stories and culture. Organizations of all kinds struggle to build and maintain an organized culture that puts ethics first. As employees leave an organization and new hires come on board, there's a constant need to instill a clear sense of how we do things around here. Recent research suggests that stories are a uniquely powerful way to integrate ethics into the onboarding process. Sean Martin from the University of Virginia made this discovery while he was studying the Asian technology firm iTech. He organized sessions where team members from the organization would share specific types of stories with new hires. The stories which featured one of two types of characters, either leaders in the organization or low-level employees. Additionally, there were two types of plot. The character either upheld or violated the organization's values, and Martin was then able to follow employees from each group over time. His main finding was simple. Stories about values are incredibly valuable. Uh, valuable. The use of stories had a tremendous impact that showed up in employees' behaviors. Martin also discovered that some stories about values resonate more than others. Stories about leaders doing the right thing help new hires learn about the values that the organization espouses. But the stories about how low-level employees played a bigger role in shaping new hires' actual behaviors. This was largely because new hires identified more directly with lower-level employees, people like them, than with the executives. So let's look at story and character. It's not just culture. Research also suggests that stories are indispensable for shaping individual character as well. Many scholars now insist we should understand our moral lives in terms of a narrative. One of the first and most influential scholars to do this was Notre Dame moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre. He claimed that a human being is essentially a storytelling animal. And to live a moral life, he argued, we have to think about our life as a whole. Thinking of it as a constantly evolving story provides a way to do this. To test claims that, like McIntyre's and Dan McAdams at Northwestern, uh, he has collected thousands of life stories and found that people who live what psychologists called generative rather than stagnant lives do, in fact, tend to see their lives as a particular kind of grand story. Here are the five traits of highly generative people. They experienced some early advantage in life that made them want to be want to help the less fortunate. They developed sensitivity to oppression, inequality, and some other form of suffering. Three, they were given a strong moral framework to live work live by. Four, they experienced negative events and sought to transform them into positive. And finally, five, they aimed to improve others' life or society as a whole. So how do you put this in practice? Don't just state your values, share stories. Too often organizations assume that a statement of corporate values is the best, perhaps even the only way to speak about their values. By stocking up on stories of real people who live your organization's values, you can close the gap between ideals and actions. Two, be strategic about storytelling. Not every moment in the life of an organization calls for a story. Research suggests that during moments of transition, uncertainty, and upheaval, stories can help provide stability and foster resilience. And finally, know your story and tell it. 
to build a story-driven organization, start by becoming story-driven yourself. Research suggests that we should spend more time reflecting on our lives as a whole or as a coherent and integrated story. But don't keep your story to yourself. This suggests that other people can play a role in helping us author a clearer, richer version of our life story. Everyone likes a leader who can tell a good story to inject life into a meeting or provide a clear, colorful example. But research shows that stories are valuable for much more than entertainment and clarification, especially stories about our values. So, Jay, uh, next up, we had a report issued by Thomson Reuters, and uh, there's a write-up by on it in CCI, and we link to that in the show notes. But you can check out the full report, and it's on the cost of compliance, uh, finding that uh, radical change may well emerge from post-pandemic reviews of and by financial regulators. While the pandemic presented many challenges, it also presented uh, financial services industries and compliance officers with some opportunities. Some of the key findings were that about one-third of firms now outsource all or part of their compliance functionality, and that's the highest rate since this question was introduced into the Thomson Reuters survey back in 2016. Following the peak of COVID-19, boards of directors cited costs and operational obstacles as the main challenges they face. Uh, They may start thinking about cybersecurity or reputational damage going forward or even ESG. 78% of respondents expected the amount of information to be published by regulators to increase. Frankly, Jay, I find that figure to be low. Uh, under the Biden administration, I think uh, 100% of people should expect the amount of information to be published by regulators uh, to increase. Our next up, financial boards identified their biggest challenges as the uh, volume of regulatory change, meeting regulatory expectations. And then this this one is probably a cl- little bit closer to you and your AMI heart, Jay, instilling a culture of compliance within an organization. Uh, next up, Thomson Reuters saw the lowest percentage change of respondents who expected the cost of their staffs to increase, whether that is from turnover or uh, other, it's not clear. Nevertheless, uh, it's certainly uh, something interesting. And finally, uh, the risk-aware culture is perhaps the most single valuable asset a company can develop, especially in this ever-changing environment. And Jay, if there's one thing or one of the top things we took away from the past year of COVID-19 is risk awareness. Thanks, Tom. Here's the first of two dealing with financial crimes. This one comes to us from, comes to us from GAB, the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. And I hope I'm saying it right, but this is by Maisie Teitler. Money laundering for AML is artificial intelligence up to the task of anti-money laundering compliance. Fighting corruption, especially grand corruption, requires effective anti-money laundering systems capable of efficiently and correctly flagging suspicious transactions. The financial institutions responsible for identifying and reporting suspicious transactions employ an automated system that identify transactions that involve certain red flags. When the automated system flags a transaction, this consequently triggers a review. Machine learning and artificial intelligence systems extract patterns from training data sets and learn by induction where data patterns are associated with particular identifiable transactions. Email spam filters provide a simple example, a spam filter which can be created to conduct a process known as classification, sorts input variables into two categories, either spam or not spam. 
Advocates hope that machine learning and artificial intelligence systems could be used to both filter out the false positives, which are transactions that are flagged as suspicions, but turn out on review not to raise any concerns, an estimated 99% of all flagged transitions, while also identifying unusual potential fraudulent behavior that may have been overlooked by human regulators, which are the false positives. To that extent, AI tools can improve upon the admittedly clunky automated systems currently in use, and it could be a step forward. But machine learning and artificial intelligence systems have a less than stellar track record in other contexts, and a model targeted at AML compliance presents unique challenges. First, machine learning models require at least some data in their training set. In short, to train a model to identify likely money laundering, the model must either be trained with large sets of transactions labeled money laundering or not money laundering, or researchers must be able to determine the truth values for the transactions that the model groups together make up to test its validity. Second and relatedly, machine learning and artificial intelligent models have greater difficulty correctly identifying rare events, and money laundering, while far too common, is, so far as we know, quite rare when considered as a percentage of overall financial transactions. And third, and related to both of the above problems, it can be very difficult to assess whether a machine learning system is relying on reasonable indicia of potential wrongdoing, or if the algorithm, perhaps due to the inadequacies of the training data, has learned to associate money laundering with relevant transactions. For these reasons, it's not yet clear whether money laundering and rather, I'm sorry, whether machine learning and artificial intelligence models will deliver their promised error reduction and efficiency gains. But if these tools are not built with correctly data labeled data sets, they will not deliver the quality needed. To be sure, some of these concerns can be mitigated through appropriate measures, and machine learning artificial intelligence systems may still represent an incremental improvement over the existing automated review systems. But the challenges inherent in developing a robust model, model and the AML contest suggest the need to proceed with great caution. So, Jay, uh, there was a really interesting article uh, in uh, CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights, by Mark Jensen and Ian Rothman. And they took a look at uh, the financial services industry over the past year and really contrasted it with uh, events from 2008. And they um, really showed us that the reforms put in place, largely through Dodd-Frank, helped the system uh, uh, weather the 2020 financial crisis, of course, brought on by uh, COVID-19 and mismanagement from uh, the Trump administration. Uh, And the uh, protections put in place by the by uh, rather Dodd Frank really uh, did hold uh, the financial markets obviously much better than it did in twenty uh, or two thousand and eight. So uh, the government uh, put together a working group and issued a report in December twenty twenty, which found that the impact. Uh, on uh, money market mutual funds was uh, much lessened because of the SEC's rules, which tighten credit duration and liquidity requirements for all funds. The work of uh, Janet Yellen uh, going forward uh, on uh, asset managers 
uh, I think is part of the solution. But the third thing they brought up, Jay, and this one I thought really touched a lot more on compliance than the few points was about uh, Archegos or Aregos. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Anyway, the Aregos capital management failure, uh, which uh, cost um, uh, some $14 billion to lenders. So the first question was how did Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, and several other large institutions allow their risk management portfolios to hold or lend money, rather, to a family-owned capital management firm that was taking such uh, highly leveraged and risky positions? So where was the risk management in the financial institutions uh, lending the money to Archegos to to make its leveraged bets. Uh, but the second thing, and this is either the more troubling or or uh, the more difficult issue, Jay, is, and I don't mean to pick on Viacom, but uh, it turned out that Archegos had taken a very leveraged position on uh, Viacom long and believing that the company's price would continue to go up. And they had a very high high amount of stock below the 5% threshold for public reporting. So Viacom was not uh, aware of uh, this entity, which held uh, so much of its stock. And when it crashed, the uh, when uh, Archegos went down and margin calls were made, and they couldn't make the margin calls, the stock price of Viacom dropped 20%. And so uh, the, the question kind of lingering is, how much do companies need to know about who's investing in them? And that's a level of scrutiny, you know, above 5%. Certainly, uh, uh, that, that kicks in a public announcement requirement and other regulatory fi- filing, so a company could be aware of that. But below that, Jay, uh, my sense is many companies, most companies, public companies, really don't, don't have uh, too much visibility in, into that. And there could certainly be layers of not shell corporations, but purchasers as well. So the uh, Archegos event illustrates the limited visibility uh, into head fund, head fund exposures and uh, underscored the importance of more uh, disclosures. And I think from the compliance perspective, compliance officers may have to start thinking about uh, you know who who are large investors in our company are they are they taking highly leveraged positions and are those positions uh, are long or short? Uh, I think companies are aware when someone's trying to when someone shorts them, but you rarely think about uh, someone taking a long position in a company and that being something that could negatively impact the stock price so high. So it's really interesting article. Uh, the the bottom line is the protections put in place after two thousand and the 2008 financial crisis in the form of Dodd-Frank and SEC regulations worked this time. So uh, certainly that was uh, a good news to report. Uh, what did Mike Volkoff uh, see in the Odebrecht case, Jay? Um, Mike, in his corruption, crime and compliance blog, uh, says that the DOJ is starting to launch its FCPA enforcement profile after a brief lull and the DOJ's transition to a new administration. Mike points out that this enforcement lull occurred in the transition to the prior administration in 2016 and that there is nothing to glean from it since it's a natural occurrence when new DOJ administration takes power. 
Last week, we had some rumblings of FCPA enforcement with the announcement of three separate criminal cases against individuals. Each enforcement action deserves a separate blog posting. The DOJ criminal FCPA program continues to ramp up and mature. But for COVID-19 last year, DOJ's criminal case numbers would have increased steadily year over year during the period of the last three years. In this first interesting case, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, unsealed an indictment charging, and I hope I don't butcher this, Peter Weinzerell, 55, and Alexander Waldstein, 73, with laundering more than $170 million as part of the Odebrecht bribery scandal. In 2016, Odebrecht, the Brazilian engineering and construction conglomerate, reached a global settlement of $2.6 billion with Brazil, the U.S., and other international law enforcement agencies as part of Operation Car Wash for its conduct of a massive global bribery scheme. Weinzerall and Waldstein used their high-ranking position in banks in Antigua and Austria to facilitate the bribery scheme and facilitate Odebrecht's evasion of more than $100 million in tax liability. As charged in the indictment, they used fake transactions and sham financial services to move more than $170 million from Odebrecht books to offshore shell companies. Odebrecht falsely deducted the transfers as business expenses to evade large tax liabilities in Brazil. Weinzerell was arrested in the United Kingdom and is being extradited to the U.S. Waldstein is still at large. In addition, they transferred millions of dollars in illicit proceeds to a brokerage account in the U.S., where they invested in corporate stocks, bonds, and U.S. securities. In exchange, they earned millions in fees. Both of them helped uh, Odebrecht set up offshore accounts for shell companies for tax planning purposes. Starting in 2010, the bankers implemented back-to-back transaction schemes in which Odebrecht wired millions from a subsidiary to a foreign bank account in accordance with sham service agreement. After earning a substantial fee, the bankers secretly sent the remaining funds to Odebrecht shell companies in order to disguise the pass-through to another entity. Weinzerell was the CEO and Waldstein, an officer of an Austrian bank, and both served as board members of the Antiguan Bank. The -the off-the-books slush funds were used by Odebrecht to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes and government officials around the globe. So, Jay, uh, pretty big news last week in the ESG and corporate governance world where uh, now three uh, Exxon uh, nominated board members were defeated by an activist investor, uh, engine number one, who wanted to put forward a slate of more climate change friendly board members. Uh, it was truly a David and Goliath battle, uh, over 35 million, somewhere between 35 million and $50 million was spent just on the election alone. It was just an insane amount of money never seen. I don't think in uh, corporate board, elections. It was a huge defeat for Exxon, who vehemently opposed the um, nominations from engine number one. And uh, Nell Minow Minow, uh, wrote in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance that there were three key lessons she saw in this that um, I think probably you and I and Many of our listeners will appreciate this as much as anyone, Jay. This is Capitalism 101, and uh, shareholders uh, at this point are the legal owners of a corporation. 
And if the shareholders want a different direction or different people running it, they have the right to do so. And one of the ways they can do so is uh, through boards of uh, directors elections. And I think Exxon either forgot that or chose to ignore that. But the entire system of capitalism is based on a credible mechanism for minimizing these uh, such costs. And um, when you have an election, you have uh, the shareholders making their say about the direction of the company. Uh, number two, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. And we certainly learned that today, as uh, it appears now, the Boston Red Sox avoided the sweep. Uh, in the Cheaters Bowl, but nevertheless, the Astros won the series three to one. Uh, so, uh, but that's true in business as well. So, corporations uh, need to be aware of that, and if they forgot that, they need to re-remember that. And and perhaps the the biggest lesson she saw is that you can't take your investors for granted. Uh, index funds, pension funds, other major institutional investors. Uh, have very large holdings in uh, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, they're not going anywhere. Uh, and, and if they don't believe the board is providing adequate over, oversight, the easiest way is uh, to either sell, i.e. liquidate their position, but they may not want to do that. They may be in for the long term. And I'd like you to think about, I'd ask our listeners to think about all of the institutional investors who voted against Exxon's board and for uh, engine number one, that those investors are taking a very long-term view. It's not going to be easy for Exxon to retool. It's it's going to take time. It's going to cost money. And Exxon's value may well continue to drop. But they see, the investors see long-term value in Exxon <coughs> refocusing on more carbon-neutral uh, uh, processes. So, um don't take your investors for granted. So a really interesting article, a lot of lessons learned. ESG has been in the news quite a bit uh, this year, Jay, and this is one of the biggest stories uh, around. So uh, I think ESG is it's here to stay, and there's a reason there's a G in ESG, and that's governance. Sure. So, uh, Tom, this is, as promised, a second story on financial crimes. This comes for, uh, to us from Risk and Compliance Platform Europe, and it's written by Frank, and I hope I say it right, Stalins. Although the global amount spent on combating financial crime went above $1.3 billion, 2020 saw a record number of enforcement actions in numerous global jurisdictions. Furthermore, estimates suggest between $800 billion and $2 trillion of criminal money flows went through the financial system in 2020, while an overwhelming majority of it remained undetected. In other words, the financial crime combat status at the average financial institution today is too high in spending and too low on results. Although regulators around the world always allow for financial institutions to design their own risk-based approach, Review procedures are often copied from one institution to another and are standardized by using fixed checklists and risk weights. Poor quality data servicing and enrichment continues to result in high numbers of false positives, the disposal of which some financial institutions 
are incapable of handling with reason, within reasonable delays. Sometimes poor technology choices by IT people end up using non-customized rules instead of using artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that are capable of supporting a truly dynamic risk-based approach. Most financial crime analysts need to manually collect data from multiple systems over and over again. Further repetitive manual work is put into document and entity link visualization. On top of this, most financial institutions still use isolated review processes. Risk information about the same entity is spread over different databases without having access to holistic risk views. Some financial crime analysts have a tendency toward qualifying risk too high out of fear for mistakes, not realizing that an overqualification of risks increases the responsibility of the employer. The combined negative effect of the use of standardized review procedures, the lack of holistic risk views, the use of poor quality data, wrong technology, and increasing fear for mistakes result in financial crime departments losing a lot of time chasing the wrong entities and not securing enough time to unravel complex high-risk cases. Add to this the potential efficiency gain that could be attained through automation of repetitive data collections and analysis tasks, the implementation of consistent working methods between different teams, and the avoidance of duplicative efforts between different entities, and you will understand why Frank believes that part of the exponential growth in resources that we have seen during the past decade could have been avoided. The key solution to overcoming all of these issues is scalable review procedures with fast multidisciplinary deployment teams that have access to the right technology. Best efforts in combating financial crime also assumes the use of best technology. So, Tom, that wraps up our stories. What are we looking at in terms of podcasts this week? Jay, we had uh, a really great week in podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. Your colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, led it off with a two-part series this week on Wirecard uh, entitled The Know When to Hold Them, Parts 1 and 2. So check out uh, the continuing saga of Wildcard. And interestingly, Jay, in a lot of social media postings I see about Mikhail's podcast, uh, it's along the line of Europeans and even Germans saying, why is it this American has the best podcast on Wirecard? Why can't we get this information? Um, as I announced last week, it's the return of Trekking Through Compliance. The full 79 episodes of Star Trek, the original series, it began on June 1. So far this week, we had The Man Trap, Charlie X, Where No Man Has Gone Before, and The Naked Time. Compliance Man has returned. Yes, uh, Tim Kashinov Batarov is back for a new season of Compliance Man with Compliance Man True or False, uh, part two posted today, part, posts every Friday over the next uh, several weeks at 7 a.m. I'm extraordinarily pleased, Jay, to announce the premiere of another new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network from the editor's desk, where along with editor-in-chief of Compliance Week, Dave Leefort, uh, we review some of the top stories from Compliance Week each month, uh, take a look at what's coming up on Compliance Week. And uh, as anyone who knows Dave knows, he's a former sports journalist and Uber baseball fan, so we talk some sports, talk some baseball, talk some football, talk some basketball. Uh, the first episode premieres today on June 4th, 
It's going to be uh, the first and last Friday of each month. And as a special guest on our first episode, Jay, we had Allie McDevitt, who uh, did a fabulous five-part series in May on the Volkswagen monitorship. So she comes on to talk about uh, that experience of uh, researching, interviewing the the Volkswagen monitorship team and Volkswagen employees and uh, writing the piece. So check out um, from the editor's desk, uh, all on the Compliance Podcast Network. But we had yet another podcast from your colleagues on integrity, uh, excuse me, integrity through compliance, uh, compliance through integrity. Sorry about that. And uh, why don't you tell us about that, Jay? Sure. Uh, my AMI affiliated monitors colleague, Jesse Kaplan, hosted Troutman Pepper's partner, Miranda Hooker, and AMI's James Anliot as they discussed the growing opportunities, significant compliance risks, the available compliance guidance, and the limits to guidance, and how to mitigate potential government investigations and enforcement actions. Uh, it's a real in-the-weeds conversation about how to deal with uh, potential issues of resulting from the medical field, and the podcast dropped on Wednesday. You can find it either on the Affiliated Monitor's website, or you can also find it on Tom's web- website, the Compliance Podcast Network. And we also have two K2 Integrity events to tell you about. On June 9th, join K2 Integrity's Lindsay DeFeed and Olivia Allison to hear about the benefits of taking a holistic and programmatic approach to preventing, detecting, responding to, and remediating insider threats. Uh, We have a link on the show notes. And then we also, on July 1st, please join K2 Integrity's, oh my goodness, Snezana, Gebauer, and Darren Matthews, and they will present a webinar on asset tracings at the IBA Global Influencer Forum. Uh, Again, we have links to all these podcasts on the show notes. And Tom, uh, what's the update on your new book and what do we have for our listeners? So Jay, uh, we're closing in on the publication date. At some point by hopefully the end of this month, uh, it will be released for public from publishers, LexisNexis, but we've still got a link to presale with a discount in the show notes. So uh, check out the book. I've got uh, several uh, media events upcoming, Jay, one of which is uh, Integrity through uh, compliance through integrity. I was interviewed by your colleague Ben Deciani. I was interviewed by the brothers Gallo for Compliance Line. I'm planning some things with Conversant and uh, some other podcasts as well. So uh, really excited about the book finally coming out. But the, this appears to be the month, Jay. You want to take us home? I will. So uh, Tom Fox, as you all know, is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I am Jay Rosen, podcasting from a disclosed location in Southern California, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. And I can be reached at the initial Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So uh, on behalf of both of us, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 255, for the week ending June 4th, 2021, the Cheater Sweep Edition. We thank you for spending some of your week or weekend with us, and we look forward to speaking to you next week when we look at This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. 
you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.